Enjoy the show. Beaming at you from the depths of the internet. This is the Temple of Geek Podcast, your one stop for all things geek. Welcome to the Temple of Geek Podcast. My name is Emily, and I will be your host today as we unpack all of the emotional baggage from Avengers Endgame. Pathos is one of three Aristotelian rhetorical devices. Ethos is an appeal to authority, Logos is an appeal to logic, and Pathos is an appeal to emotion. I think that most folks will agree that Pathos plays a major role in Endgame, and that is what our episode is going to be about today. Listeners, beware, this podcast includes spoilers. With me today is fellow Temple of Geek podcast host Monica Duarte and cosplayer Madison Morrow. Hey, Monica. Hello. Monica is the regular host of the Temple of Geek podcast and a cosplayer photographer for Temple of Geek. And hey, Madison. Hello. Madison is a teacher, cosplayer, geek mom, and all-around fangirl. Her favorite fandoms are Doctor Who, Star Wars, and Marvel, among others. Uh, Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, So I kind of want to start with our own emotions. Uh, What are three words that describe how you felt during or after the film? Personally, mine were were ecstatic, wounded, and inspired. Um, I think for me, it really was like a gratefulness, inspired, and also excited. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I can definitely speak to the excited. um, But my three words for sure were, I felt a sense of like being relieved. Um, I was definitely heartbroken and just all around happy. I love those. I feel like all of those are wrapped up in everything. Um, Okay, so I kind of want to just dive right in. Um, It's really rare that we get failed heroes in any kind of epic narrative, which dates even as far back as Homer's Odyssey. But what Infinity War does is it gives us a massive sort of unprecedented loss. Uh, And throughout Endgame, we get to see the repercussions of that and how each hero deals with their loss and how they handle grief. Uh, grief is multifaceted, I think, and Endgame gives us a really unique opportunity to see how all of our heroes deal with grief that diverges, I think, from the usual superhero narrative, which can be something like refrigerating, which is the the sort of trope of a male hero's um, love interest dies, and they use that as a uh, catalyst for revenge. So I'd love to hear your reactions to some of the characters' experiences and manifestations of loss and grief. Uh, I want to start with Tony. When he returns from space, even when he sees Pepper, he's pretty angry and distances himself from everybody else. And uh, based on his message to her from the preview, which I felt like was super heartfelt, uh, we might have expected that he'd be over the moon to see her. But we really see that anger, I think, more than relief from seeing Pepper. And I'm just curious what you guys think his reaction tells us about maybe his state of mind and maybe as also part of his character arc. I think that because he's been on, I mean, God knows how long he and uh, Nebula were on Titan before they like went off into space, but he was just kind of like in this void of space for like 21 days is what he says at some point. And I think that all that time other than like trying to work is just really reflecting on what happened, what went wrong. And he's thinking about all the ways that he could have prevented it. He's thinking about all the things that he saw and all that has happened And I think he's rightfully angry because he knew, like, he's yelling at Cap, like, you know, we should have put up a barrier around the earth. And he could have, if we had that in place, maybe he wouldn't have gotten, like, the stones. And and who knows, um, you know, Thanos took over some pretty guarded, you know, super, I guess, uh, planets that were, like, super well defended. So maybe it wouldn't have made a difference. But I think that Tony is still... um, very much in like what happened in the other Avengers movies where he was just kind of like, you know, I saw this coming. I knew that this was bad. Like, why didn't anybody listen to me? Why didn't we try? Why didn't we stick together? So I think that like, it's natural that he would be upset. Not to mention he's lost so many important people. And on top of like, just personally important people to him, he's lost like half the galaxy. 
And he's very much responsible for that in a sense, because he set out to try to defend it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and the whole purpose of him going off into space with the spaceship and risking so much was that earth wouldn't be touched. You know what I mean? So um, he was taking the fight to him per se. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think you kind of nailed it, <laughs> Monica. Um, I completely agree with you. He was, he was, um, had every right to be angry because um, multiple times throughout the Avengers movies, um, he has tried to stop what was coming. Um, in the original Avengers, you know, with the missile trying to shove it back up into space and then you know, they thought they stopped it and then something else happened and they thought they stopped it again. And so I think he just feels all around personally responsible for every bad thing that has happened. And so with those 21 days in space, he just, yeah, like you said, he just dwelled on it and, you know, could have stopped it. Like, like you said, you know, yeah, I, I love what you have to say, Madison, about being very personally upset about it, because I think it speaks to uh, Thor as well, which is someone else that I wanted to talk about. Um, he's maybe the most visibly upset. Um, yes. His grief drove him to drink, um, which he lost his godly build, right, which is sort of what he's known for. Um, and I, I've seen a lot of reactions from fans about this being disappointed about that. Um, and I just, I wonder if we can talk about the way Thor dealt with his grief in relationship to maybe like maybe addiction and even perhaps getting onto fat shaming too. I, I mean, what do you guys think about that? Um, yeah, I will be the first to admit that I laughed when I saw what had happened to Thor. I think a lot of us did at first um, just because I, I don't know about you, but I was not expecting to see that. Um, and um, I think that that was just all he knew how to do. Um, he had lost everyone and he ultimately was the reason why that took so long to change everything because he had killed Thanos and then they had five years of nothing. Um, and so he just kind of fell into, yeah, the drinking and they had access to it. And because he was their king or a god, um, no one said anything to him. Um, you know, that's kind of where, like, I stand on or like how I think about that. You know, I didn't really think too much about the whole fat shaming thing, um, but it is kind of nice to see that he didn't lose his worthiness in the end, um, even though he didn't technically look like a god after all of this. Oh, man, I'm totally with you. And I mean, I think probably like the fat shaming thing needs some contextualization. Um, I, I do love that we get to see an example of addiction in a way that is very real. Um, I think that any anybody who's dealing with a sort of loss can definitely fall into that pretty easily. Um, and the way that the film deals with it, I thought, was actually pretty elegant. Um, and then, I, please don't feel badly for laughing when we when we saw Thor. I think we were supposed to laugh, right? Like, like I think that was supposed to be mm -hmm. a joke. But um, the way Madison that you said that he is still worthy is something actually Monica brought up to me earlier is a way of redemption, I think, in um, a way that reflects something else that was said in the film um, from Thor's mom, which is, I don't, was it Thor's mom? I don't judge people by their mistakes. No, that was not Thor's mom. That was um, <clears throat> Black Widow. Sorry. No. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. Failing there. I, I know I just saw it a few hours ago, but um <laughs> <laughs> this idea that like we are not necessarily exactly how our shame looks and how our shame looks on us and then his ability to get his hammer back um in that scene uh when we were back in Asgard I just thought was this real beautiful moment of no the way that we deal with our grief and and the way that things happen to us doesn't necessarily have to be this monstrosity. It can actually be something uh, redemptive and something progressive, even if it doesn't look mm -hmm. beautiful or godly, right? In in the literal case here, um, I just kind of you know, I I really 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 loved 
that it was like depressed Thor and like um, kind of like a heavier Thor than we're used to that was still worthy, still good enough that his depression, what he did to Thanos, um, that all those things didn't make him less worthy. It just kind of validated that, you know, yes, Thor's not human, but it's like a human thing that we go through. You know, Thor just kind of always, um, you see it a lot in Infinity War when he's talking to Rocket. And he's like, you know, oh, everything's fine. Everything's going to be okay, you know. And then Rocket starts to, like, talk to him and say, like, you know what? It doesn't look like you're okay. And Thor starts to kind of unpack about, like, his sister and his brother and his dad and his family and how, you know, obviously Asgard has been obliviated. And it's just him now. And he's like, I have nothing left to lose. And Rocket's like, well, I have something left to lose. But, like, you can just see how much... Thor is dealing with and also how strong he's being in those moments because no matter what he keeps going he keeps going he keeps going and killing Thanos is kind of like where he thought he would maybe find get that revenge or find that satisfaction and then you find that it wasn't what he needed he didn't get that satisfaction and it only drove him into like this bigger depression where like on the outside it just looks like oh he's lazy or whatever gained weight or just gave up or whatever but it's him really processing and dealing with a lot of the things that like have like, you know, what has happened and he feels responsible. And I love that, you know, when he's talking to his mother and he's just open and honest and kind of weepy, mm-hmm. it's actually like a really big show of strength. It's not like, you know, it doesn't make him weak because he gained all this weight and he lost his godly build. It doesn't make him weak or any less worthy or anything. He is still sore. He's still who he was supposed to be. He's still strong in a in a bigger way because like, you know, he could have gone the Ronin route and just started like aggressively being all evil about it. But he didn't, you know, and to see him kind of like still being worthy and still being good enough and and being strong enough to talk about what's wrong. Like he went to his mother, he went to somebody. And the fact that he was able to like, you know, say that out loud just shows his growth and how really strong on the inside he is, you know. And I love that when they went into battle at the end, that Thor was like, you know, and his, he's he's bigger Thor. He's not like the the you know, really toned Thor and he still kicked ass and he was still amazing and he was still wonderful. And I love that. I love that they, that they made this like heavier set, like Thor still as badass as the original. He wasn't fumbling. He wasn't an idiot. He was Thor and he was classically funny, which is like, you know, they kind of like hint at these little fumbling moments, but that's just been Thor always. Um, But anyways, I just love, love, loved depressed Thor and him being worthy and him still like being a, badass in the shape that he was in yeah I can't agree with you more Monica I really I think that the way you put it about him that being a strength right like his vulnerability being a strength is is a really I think persuasive powerful incredible moment um and I think we also sort of see that with Cap right I I thought it was such an interesting choice to see him in this sort of support group setting right where he's it it looks like almost an addiction group if we're thinking about Thor too it's it's about people moving forward and healing um but immediately afterwards he goes to see Black Widow Nat and they have this conversation over a peanut butter and jelly sandwich which I think is super appropriate um about how neither of them are have this ability to move on um, and I, I'm just curious that those two things seem sort of at odds with one another. Um, and I wonder how you guys think this polarity of Cap's personality that we see here in Endgame um, is a result of his growth, a result of his change, um, and what you think it has to do with the snap. Um, so when I see Cap, when I was watching Cap and him being like this positive thing like he was always like the guy that was like inspiring the troops right or inspiring everybody and he's got these big speeches and he's all about like let's go do this blah 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 and Cap just feels like I feel like Cap has like this moral obligation to like just keep smiling and powering through and I almost see it like you know as a parent right like as a parent you're 
you love your kids and you're in a bad situation and something's going wrong and you can't act like anything's going wrong because if you act like everything's wrong, like the kids are going to freak out, even though you yourself are suffering the same things they are. But if they don't see you be strong and if they, you know, they're going to get scared, they're going to freak out and you can't do that. And so when I saw Captain America, I saw like parents everywhere just kind of like, don't worry, honey, it's going to be fine, even though you know nothing's going to be fine. But what else can you do? You have to power through. So I feel like Cap knows that he's obligated to kind of like be the face of everything. And come on, guys, everything, we have to move on and move forward, even though he necessarily doesn't bite into that. He just knows he has to do it. You know, it's almost just like an obligation for him. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, he um, is always the voice of reason, always rallying the troops, getting everyone, you know, let's do this. We have a mission. We have orders. Let's do it. Um, And then to be sitting in that group being like, oh, I'm so proud of you for moving on. Like you went on this date. You did so great. Um, You know, my love interest, you know, in 1945 and I went into the ice and all this stuff and you know, talking to Nat about moving on. And then she was like, well, then who would be here? You know, who would be here to check up on everyone to see how the universe is doing? Um, And I feel like they both had that sort of obligation where, um, you know, we need to make sure that everyone else is okay before I'm okay. Um, And I know personally, I I have that struggle. And like Monica said, as a parent, you always want to put the needs of everyone else first to make sure, oh, you're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. And then now internally Cap is still struggling all these years of basically living in the wrong time. Um, and then now this huge devastation has happened and he still can't get himself to move forward. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's really beautifully put and I think very poignant considering that he is a man out of time, uh, which he actually gets to be a man in time, right, at Mm -hmm. at the end of the film, which I think this happy ending for Cap is so delightful and so beautiful. Um, And it's actually the very last scene of the film, which I thought was so interesting. It was a very interesting editorial or um, directive choice. Um, And then as a result, right, laying down his shield as Captain America. Um, And I'm just, I'm wondering how you guys think that a happy ending versus the sort of disaster, I mean, no matter how we think of Endgame, like there is a sort of disaster to it. Um, And so how does this ending work within the story arc of Cap from the very beginning? And then what about in the narrative of Endgame as a whole? Um, So, um, I'm sorry. No, it's all good. Um, I just want to say that um, I sobbed like uncontrollably when <laughs> I realized what was happening when we saw that he was older and he had a wedding ring on. I started smacking my best friend in the arm like, oh my gosh, he married her. He married her. Like I was full <laughs> on like crying and just so excited. Um, and I think that that was, I honestly feel like that was the conclusion we all needed yeah. um, because it was such a disaster um, with Infinity War and then with Endgame of still having characters who have died or didn't get to come back. Um, having that happy ending, I feel like was just a nice little bow on top for all of us. Um, and it just wrapped up Captain America's story so beautifully. Um, because then, like you, Emily said, um, he got to be a man in time. He got to put the, all the stones back and then he got to live his life like Tony kept telling him to do, but he got to do it in his time. Oh my gosh, I'm going to cry right now. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it was no. beautiful and wonderful. And that it was everything that I know I needed. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it did feel very uh, cathartic in, in the face of so much disaster, even though I think we do land at, you know, we land at a win, which thank goodness, right? Um, yeah. And I I was really interested too in the way that that narrative connected to the time travel narrative, right? So like he never actually came back. He just sort of showed up in present time in his future, which I thought worked really well. Um, and if anyone deserves a happy ending, my goodness, isn't it Cap? Like he's noble to the point of like, sometimes I just want to smack him. <laughs> like, <laughs> have a little grit, man. <laughs> 
Um, but but I did think it worked really well. Uh, Monica, what did you think about it? I was, oh my God, like I didn't see it coming. I feel like, you know, you have like all this time with fan theories and this and that and time travel. And I it seems like such an obvious choice that if Cap could travel back in time, where would he go? Obviously to Peggy's, right? So it, it, it seems so obvious now. But like, you know, at the time, I didn't see it coming. And so it was like such a happy surprise. I really thought Cap was going to die. Like I thought, like I was prepared oh for him to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then him going, you know, and when they go back in time and he sees Peggy through the window, I was just waiting for him to be like, I just want to say that I love you or like whatever, and then go die. You know, like yeah. I just, yeah. I was expecting like another Infinity War. And I'm really glad we didn't get like another devastating, like everybody getting snapped, like snapped kind of Infinity War because I don't think that I mm-hmm. can handle it. So I was mm-hmm. just so happy to finally have like, something to be happy about and cap growing old with peggy carter like come on man like so beautiful (laughs) like that is like fanfic and i feel like the russo brothers gave us a little bit of that like i i know that it was like kind of like a fan service and that's fine like thank you so much because we needed that like we stuck in here for 22 movies and i'm so glad that they gave us at least a little fan service which was Cap getting his happy ending and like, thank you, you know, like you mm-hmm. took Tony from us, like, Ooh, oh, okay, you know, and like Pepper and and Baby oh. Stark, and you know, and Tony didn't get their happy ending, but like at least Cap did, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, anyways, that's all I have to say about that. I love it. I love it. There's um, there's another couple, and they're not technically a romantic couple, but I feel like um, Hawkeye slash Ronins and Natasha slash Black Widows, um, their storylines, they are intertwined from the very beginning of the film, right? <clears throat> um, and we begin the film with losing Ronan's family, oh. which I think it, it was like some weeps from from the very <laughs> the first few moments. Oh. Um, and then, and then we see this beautiful connection between Nat and Ronan as the film progresses. They go into time travel together. She's the one who goes and finds him and pulls him out of this, you know, merc assassin lifestyle. Um, and considering that, you know, becomes a very much unhappy ending. Um, how does Hawkeye's relationship with his grief, do you think, inform the way that he moves through the the storyline of Endgame? Uh, Monica, do you want to take this first? Because this is a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So like, you know, as we're talking, I, you know, there's like all the stages of grief, right? Like anger, denial, like all this kind of thing, right? And I feel like, you know, um, Hawkeye just kind of was he's, he's accepted this, but he's just going to like, he's angry and he's out for revenge and he doesn't care. He just wants other people to hurt. He's, he literally tells this guy, like the guy who's like, why are you doing this? And he's like, because all these people survived and you got to stay here. All you're doing is hurting other people. Like it's not fair that good people were snapped away and that you're over here ruining shit basically, you know? And so, you know, he knows nothing's going to change. He's hurting from the pain and he's willing to hurt somebody else, like hurt people, hurt other people. And Hawkeye knows that. And so like, even when he's like, you know, going to like throw himself into, you know, when they're on Vormir and and he's going to, you know, commit suicide in, in the name of getting that soul stone or whatever. I believe that Hawkeye really was like, look, I'm a shitty person now. I'm not who I used to be. And I deserve this. I've been angry for so long. Like just, put me out of my misery kind of thing, you know? And so, you know, when I, I, I feel like what happened to him is a very natural thing that probably has happened to many people who have suffered the grief of losing family and losing people. So like when I see the movie, I just, I really feel like, wow, like they really hit all these different kind of like um, stages of grief that people go through with like the different Avengers, like everyone is grieving in their own way. And like Hawkeye or Ronan or, you know, Clint, uh, what are you going to call him? I feel like his is like so strong and so, um, so raw, you know, and the only way he can, he can get it out is to like kill a bunch of people. Is that right? No, absolutely. It's not right, but it's how he did it. And, and I think it says a lot about the fact that, you know, Natasha just, 
she still didn't give up on him knowing what like, you know, Rhodes had told her about him and how far gone he was. She was like, you know, and she tells Hawkeye herself, like, you know, um, you know, you came back for me, so I'm not going to let you go. Like, you know, I don't believe that you're so far gone, you know? And I just believe it's, it's a beautiful relationship that they have. Um, but you know, I, I get what, why he got so mean and crazy. Yeah. I like how you had said it was raw. It kind of just proves his humanity, um, that these, you know, majority of the Avengers are human and they, you know, um, Hawkeye lost his family in such a violent way and he was an assassin. Like that's what he did. And he, the, he, sought revenge and sought what he thought would bring him peace in the only way he knew how and that was through killing a bunch of people um and so like monica said was it right no but that was the only thing that he knew how to bring himself peace yeah i wonder i wonder if we forgive him at all for that i don't know what do you guys think do we give him a pass I don't know. I think that like, I I can't condone that kind of behavior under any circumstances, you know, because like, it's the same thing as like with um, Thor, you know, just chopping off Thanos's head. I get it. Thanos mm-hmm. needed to die because he's like basically a mass murderer and has committed, you know, genocide on a centillion level. Um, but like, I don't know that I would give him a pass on that because it's still not right. But this is like, kind of like, not to quote Game of Thrones or, well, actually I'm quoting Game of Thrones, but like, you know, we're, we're, we're at the end of like Winterfell and everybody starts to kind of like forgive each other for all the shit that they did. It was like, you know, these are times right. of war and there's no rules in war, you know? And mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. I don't know that I give him a pass on it, but I understand where he's coming from. Like I don't yes. condone it, but I am empathetic to his struggle and what he went Yes, exactly. Yeah, I I would say that I wouldn't give him a pass either. Forgiven, yes, I believe everyone deserves forgiveness, no matter how big of a scale they have done wrong. Um, but definitely, I don't condone it either. Um, but yeah. And I think that he's willing to like, kind of pay the price for his actions. Like when yes. he tried to stop Black Widow from like committing suicide, he was just kind of like, no, I've done all these terrible things and I'm willing to die for it. Like I'm willing to like put my life on it so that the world can go on. So there is this redemption in him. You know what I mean? He's not like this terrible, obviously he's an Avenger. He's not like this terrible person, but I think this film really brings out like the gray zones and how these characters are so complex and you can be an amazing hero, but also be kind of an asshole too. You can be like an amazing person and kind of a bad guy, you know? Yes, like people yeah. are so complex. They're not black and white. And this right. film really, really shows that, especially in our superheroes. Because usually you have like Captain America, who's always so happy, cheery, perfect, or like a Superman that's perfect. But like these guys are, they're just human and they have emotions. And like they really unloaded these emotions on us guys. Like a yes. Lot. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's really beautifully put. Um, I do think that there's something to be said about the complexity of Ronan and um, the relationship then with his family and then his relationship with Nat. Um, And I want to shift a little bit to how Nat talks about the only thing that she has going on in her life is at one point she says this job, this family. Um, She handles her grief in a very sort of painful way as well. And what she did on Vormir in the name of that family. Um, would you guys unpack that for me just a little bit? How, how you thought that that scene played out besides like ugly crying? <laughs> okay. So, um, sorry, go Madison. Did you want to go first before I, um, oh, I'm, no, you had, you had your thought. Go ahead. I was just laughing at the ugly crying cause it was very true. <laughs> So one thing that I really appreciated about this scene is like when Thanos went up there to get the soul stone with Gamora, he didn't hesitate. He threw her off the thing, you know, he cried for a second, but he didn't hesitate. It was never like a, like a worry for him. Like he was like, girl, you're going to die. Right. And he throws her off and she's sitting there like, no, no. And like, you know, I'll never get over the scene where Gamora's like 
trying to hold on to his arm and like as she's being thrown out and I was like how could you do that it was devastating for me like seeing Gamora die and so in this scene you see them like they don't just throw each other over like I know what I have to do kind of thing they're sitting there and it's like they're thinking about it and she's on a rock and you know Clint's pacing and stuff like that and it's like they're not you know they obviously have a lot more like love for each other than Thanos had for Gamora. They all, they know what they have to do, but like, you know, how are they going to do it? And they, they're talking, they're kind of like on the same page and they understand what this means, but they're not ready to like, um, they're not ready for it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, right. Right. And, um, and I feel like Natasha, she talks about, I can't remember what movie it is, but, you know, she can't have kids and she, you know, can't have a family. Bruce has turned into this, like, Professor Hulk guy that she's probably not going to be in it. She has nothing else left but keeping the people that she loves alive. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it makes sense that she was willing to, to you know, give her life up so that, you know, Clint and his family can have a future because she does love his family. She is Aunt Natasha and she does love Clint and she, and he's probably the only person that she's ever really loved. Like, and not in a romantic way, but just like, you know, she's his whole world really, you know? Yeah. I, I feel like their relationship was definitely like brother and sister. You know, they've been super close and they do have that love for each other. And it was actually like, really fun to watch them fight over who was going to kill themselves on uh, Vormir uh, just to, uh, you know, to see that like, no, I'm going to do it. No, I'm going to do it. No, I'm going to do it. Um, you have a then, very morbid idea uh, of what fun is. Okay. 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 <laughs> maybe, maybe, fun, <laughs> maybe fun was the wrong word to use. No, <laughs> it, no, was, it was like, the right one. No, I, it was fine. Right. It was fine. Honestly, I'm just messing with you. Like, and then part of me was like, well, maybe neither of them have to go. You know, maybe there's like some kind of, you know, middle ground they can do or whatever, you know, something does, you know, neither of them have to die. And then, you know, your heart is racing because then they're both falling off the side of the cliff and it's just... Like, oh my gosh, which one of them is actually going to fall? And then the minute Natasha says, you have to let me go, was just so heartbreaking because you knew that there was like, that was it. And just to see her fall and then knowing that she wasn't coming back was just the biggest sacrifice for her family. And that's what she did is she sacrificed her life for her family. And I think as moms, we would do the same. And like Monica said, she couldn't have children, you know? And so this was the most love she has ever felt towards a group of people or an individual. And so this was the only way she knew how to protect them by sacrificing her life for them. Yeah. I thought, I mean, it was definitely one of my favorite scenes. Um, and, and thinking about the Soul Stone and Vormir and throwing people off of um, the, the cliff there, um, we do see Gamora being thrown off by Thanos earlier um, in Infinity War. Um, but uh, I think one of the really unique relationships in Endgame that doesn't happen with any other relationship is we have a reconciliation from the past to the future with Nebula and Gamora. Um, and I, I loved this dynamic between Gamora's past timeline with Nebula's future knowledge. Um, and I, I think we have been talking about this idea of forgiveness and considering that this idea of reconciliation between sisters. What did, what did you guys make of that? Okay, first and foremost, and I might have to say it a few times, but like Nebula's storyline and story arc and character development is a gift. I did yes. not see any of this shit coming. Excuse my language. Like, I'm so sorry. But, like, I did not see this stuff coming. And and I think that, like, Gamora and Nebula always had kind of, like, you see it, like, you know, um, you know, in the other movies where, like, they always have, like, this kind of, like, heart for each other. But it's always Gamora who's kinder and, like, you know, a little bit more accepting and trying to get Gamora, like, to uh, – I'm sorry, Gamora tries to get Nebula to like, you know, come 
you know, do the right thing. And you see it in the previous movies where she's like, he'll never find the soul stone because I burned the map and all that kind of stuff. You know, Nebula had that information. She knew that like, you know, um, Gamora had burned the map to like, you know, Vormir and that she was hoping he would never find it. And she never gave that information up to Thanos until it was taken from her memory. And so when we see them now, um, Gamora still kind of has that inner, like, we have to do the right thing. We can't let him do this. And so I think it's really great the way, like you said, the future knowledge that Nebula has, has come together with like how Gamora has always been. And she's always kind of like wanted to do the right thing. So I think they met at a perfect time. Yeah, I thought it was so beautiful. Yeah, um, for sure. I I um, I did like that they were on the same page, um, you know, kind of like finally, you know, but it took future, like you, you said, it took future Nebula to come to past Gamora where they were on that same page. And then Nebula fighting with herself, you know, is like that inward struggle that you could kind of see her facing in previous movies when Gamora was like, sister, when you can do this together, we can, you know, I still love you, blah, 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 you know, like those feelings. And you could still see Nebula, like you could see it in Nebula's face, but she never said it. At least that's like kind of how what I inferred from those situations in the past movies where it was like she wanted, you know, to so badly to please Thanos, but she also knew that he was insane and you know, finally seeing that externally with past and future Nebula fighting over Gamora, basically, um, which I thought was really wonderful. Yeah, it was it was definitely one of my favorite sort of like unexpected, strange um, time problems in the film. Yes. I really um, like how they say like, oh, so Back to the Future was bullshit <laughs> because <yes>. like, <laughs> otherwise <laughs> we, herself. <laughs> you know, especially for all of us who we've watched so many films and they call out all the films, Bill and Ted, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the and, you know, yeah. And they're like, Hot you know, if you machine. kill your grandfather, you know, then you would have never existed. And then, you know, Bruce and everybody's like, and Nebula, they're like, that's not how it works. Like, you know, you can still kill yourself in the past and survive in the future kind of thing, because this is like a different timeline or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I like that they kind of give that to us early on, because otherwise, like the geek fighting over this would be like, and I'm sure it's going on on the internet somewhere on Twitter before debating (laughs) this massively. Um, But it kind of is really cool that there's not that like, you know, oh, I'm going to fade away because I was killed in the past kind of thing and that people can move forward. That's really, really interesting. It's a really interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to the fact that they did it in such a concrete way, right? It wasn't just theoretical. It wasn't like, oh, this isn't going to happen. It's not back to the future. It was like, here, we're actually going to have a character die and have that not affect the, the present of another character. Right. Um, and there are so many different ways to deal with time travel in fiction and I think that this movie sort of unprecedentedly does it really well um, and we also we have another character Scott Lang who has his own problems with time travel right so he unlike anybody else in the film um, had only had five hours between the snap and and where we sort of open up in Endgame um, his immediate concern is finding his daughter um, but after that, he seems to have more energy than everybody else. Like he's repeating himself and getting very excited and really needs to eat a sandwich um, <laughs> after <laughs> solving the snap. Um, and do you think this lighthearted comedic side of Scott is because he hadn't really suffered in the same way that everyone else has? Or do you think that's just sort of who he is as a, as a superhero, as a person? I definitely think it's both, a little of both. Um, to only have five hours between something bad versus having five years, he hasn't had the same amount of time to dwell and think of all of the, the different scenarios and the things that could have happened. Um, as everyone else has. So he's like, hey, we can do this, and I have these ideas, and let's do this, and this, and this. And so he's just excited about solving the problem because for him, it was fresh. And so he was ready to just get it done, whereas everyone else had had all this time to dwell on what had happened. Um, And so I think, you know, part of it is he's trying to cheer everyone up by being kind of goofy, but also 
that's who he is. And that's one of the reason, one of the many reasons why I love Scott Lang's character is he's just <laughs> silly and lighthearted and his love for his daughter was beautiful. And I cried when she was alive because I was so thankful. I, that was the one thing going into this movie was his daughter better had survived the snap or I was going to lose my mind. <laughs> that was the one thing where I was holding on so much hope. And I'm so thankful that he got to see her and that they were reunited and that he was just ready to solve this problem. Absolutely. Um, I really like, I think that um, Scott Lang kind of reminds me of like a Chandler Bing where they deal with like (laughs) stress by making sarcastic jokes or crack like a little joke. And they're like, they never take anything too seriously, but that doesn't mean they don't have like really complex feelings about things. And I think you're right, Maddie, the whole fact that he wasn't, um, he he hadn't suffered as much as everybody, right? He hadn't spent five years like trying to do this and failing, trying to do this and failing and going back and forth and failing, right? Um, he he hadn't gone through what they had all gone through. So he doesn't have like that negativity or like that pessimism. Um, so I think it's a little easier for him. Like even like when he he's really concerned about his daughter, he sees that he's on the list of the dead. He runs to find his his daughter and she's alive. And when he looks at her, he realizes she's older and he's just kind of like tries to comfort her, but he's really just confused and he hasn't processed a lot of it. So I think this entire movie, Scotland didn't have the time to process it. Mm-hmm. He, he showed up, the world was new and he just had to kind of go with it. He wasn't allowed to process his feelings because there was no time. He just knew like, Hey, if I survived in five years, maybe we can time travel somehow, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how bizarre is that scene with the the boy on the bike, right? Yeah, it's it's just like the complete juxtaposition between someone who's experienced five years of absolute catastrophe versus someone who is brand new, right? And that boy's like, yeah. "What are you talking about? Like, where have you been?" Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's probably like a really underrated scene and moment. Um, but I, it, it hit me it, pretty hard. It was very unsettling. It, yes, unsettling yes. is the word. I like got the chills. I was like, whoa, he didn't answer him. Like, what is like, yeah. <laughs> it's also very depressing because the kid is like riding his bike and you see like all those garbage bags on the side of the road. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, there probably wouldn't be like a regular garbage man in every city or every, you know, like, yeah. And it's, it's, it's really interesting thinking about like what they experience in that time. Mm hmm. Right. And I mean, like something I don't think that we're talking about very much is like the ec- economic collapse, right? We, we do hear Black Widow talking about um, how the governments have collapsed in some way, but, but we don't really think about the way that like social structures or economic structures or, you know, capitalist structures in the case of capitalist countries, how those infrastructures would have completely crumbled as well. And I think that scene, as tiny as it is, does a really excellent job at expressing that. For our listeners, if yeah. you get a chance, um, one of our writers for Temple Geek, Erin, just did an article about what the real life implications of having uh, like the snap happen and then bringing everybody back. And he talks about like the ecosystem and how it would suffer because like in five years it was like cleaned up. Right. Because it's not as right. dirty, you know, because people aren't polluting yeah, as much. Yeah. But like mm-hmm. all of a sudden, like neither is the farming and things like that. So like if all these people all of a sudden showed up, like would there be enough food? Like what would happen in Wakanda where like, you know, the king has been gone for five years and that's like a position that you can challenge somebody for. So who's king now? And are they just going to let T'Challa have his kingdom back? Like what's going on? And so Aaron makes her a lot of good points. So if you guys get a chance, uh, check out his real life implications of the unsnapping. I love that. Um, so I'm, I love that, man, that Scott led us on this beautiful tangent. Uh, but there's another character who has sort of a unique experience with the, the five years and that is Hulk. So many scholars, people, geeks alike have read a Hulk story as a kind of anger management issue. And we even see Bruce Banner saying, I, I treated Hulk as if he were the disease, as if it were something that I need to get rid of. But then in Endgame, we have this conglomeration between Banner and Hulk and he really becomes the best of both worlds um, and I'm just I, I'm curious about 
you know, the snap has so many different effects on so many different people, but for Hulk, it's, it's kind of wonderful in this way because we get to see these two really at odds personalities come to something really fantastic and the best that we've ever seen Hulk be. Um, so what do you think that tells us about, about him and, and maybe the snap? Um, I honestly think that he's kind of like finally found his piece where he doesn't feel the need because in the first Avengers, he says he's always angry, which is how he controls going in and out of being the Hulk. Um, And so finding his sense of, okay, well, I don't always need to be angry. You know, I can kind of have, I'm allowed to have emotions. And so by being the Hulk and Bruce Banner, you know, he's just kind of found himself rather than being two completely different entities. And I thought that that was, it was a little, it was a little comedic, you know, with the kids wanting to take pictures with him. That was pretty silly. Um, but, but also just awesome, that, right? Yeah, exactly. Like he, he wasn't like this scary, you know, girl, I'm the Hulk, I'm going to smash things. Um, he was, yeah, like you said, the best of both worlds. And he, I feel like he finally found that center where he didn't have to be ashamed of what had happened to him. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to agree with all of that. And also, like, it goes back to my point about, like, this kind of being, like, the whole five stages of grief type thing, where, Mm -hmm. like, you know, Hulk is experiencing acceptance. Yes. He's already accepted what has happened. There's nothing he can do about it. He's accepted his fate with the Hulk. And he's moved on and he looks like a happier person, you know, because he's finally said he's at peace with himself. They did what they could. They lost. He's accepted that. He's accepted that the Hulk is part of him. And even when you see him like kind of in the diner with the kids and, you know, and, you know, he's like, oh, we want to take a selfie with you. And he's like, oh, fun about it, you know, where everybody else is much more serious. And, you know, even that that scene where he gives like um, Scott Lang the tacos. (laughs) <laughs> and like all of that like you just see him like his aura and everything oh, about him is just kind of like walking around all cool um and so i really really uh, i love just the way they cover the different aspects of like grief in this movie and how like yeah. you just see like each avengers just they're not all feeling the same thing they're mm-hmm. just or they might be mm-hmm. feeling the same thing they're all just processing it differently and i think that's very beautiful yes yeah, it's also like it's I, I think both of you have said this word, it's very complex, right? It's it's not a like a surface view of any stage of grief. And I think each of us have expressed sort of a surprise about the way that each Avenger is expressing each role of grief. Like who would have thought that Hulk would be the one that's like, I'm accepting this, it's fine. And Thor is the one that's like, I'm having a freaking exactly. mental breakdown. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? Um so I think that that is so so beautifully done in the film um and and what a surprise in in so many fantastic ways um so for our last sort of character question i want to talk about thanos a little bit um and so the end-all be-all villain of avengers is someone who has good intentions and i think this is particularly interesting to think about when it comes to climate change so we see this right in cap sees whales in the hudson um every the water's cleaner and so his deletion of 50 percent of all existing life actually comes from a place of nobility right um and this is this falls under the philosophical theory of what's called utilitarianism And the idea behind that is that someone who is in control should make a choice for the greater good, despite any particular individual pain, Um, which isn't unique to Thanos, right? Like we see this in a lot of different superhero dilemmas. We see heroes land on the side of the greater good, despite their own individual pain pretty frequently. And we actually, Tony makes this choice in Endgame as well. Um, So Thanos' logic is no different from that and how do you how do you guys like square that idea with Thanos's character do we hate him do we have empathy for him um do we want to see his head chopped off again instead of maybe just even dusted <laughs> um i hate him <laughs> greater, greater good or not <laughs> um i remember in infinity uh, you know back to infinity war when it came out 
my husband jokingly was like, I hope Thanos wins. And I said, you bite your tongue. This is a superhero movie. Good things happen at the end, right? And then obviously Thanos won. So I turned, <laughs> and I, I punched my husband in the arm and I said, you did this. And it was a whole <laughs> Exactly. So, and so going into Endgame, like I, I knew that it was going to be, you know, solved and that they had to bring everyone back. And I, whether it was for the greater good or not, I did not agree with Thanos' decision. I think life needs to just happen and people need to make mistakes. And having this idea of someone, you know, wanting to rid the universe of 50% of the population to see things blossom is just not okay with me. And it has never settled well with me. Um, And so I have zero empathy for Thanos and I was very happy to see him disintegrate at the end of this film. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I get it. Like, I totally get it, Madison. (laughs) Like, um, I think that, like, this is, you know, we see this in our real world, too. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. we saw this where, like, you know, Hitler said, you know, oh, the Jews are creating these terrible things for us. And if they were, if only they were gone, we would all be happy, right? Like, this is things that actually happen. There are countries that are dealing with this kind of, like, logic right now. And it's not Mm -hmm. logic. And I think that we we also see it, like, in um, Killmonger in Black Panther, where he he's technically not wrong in why he's upset and why he's mad and things like that, but that doesn't make what his execution right. It doesn't make Thanos' execution right. And I think that there's kind of a vanity with Thanos and a vanity with like characters like Killmonger, for example, where they they think that they're doing like the right thing or they think that they're like this hero, but they also kind of like thrive and like love that power you know where tony stark he's not making decisions to like inflate his ego you know what i mean he's not making decisions Mm -hmm. to like you know make his you know to make him feel powerful or anything like that but like thanos and like killmonger for example they do have like a vanity and like a snarkiness to them and that's what's dangerous Mm -hmm. and that's where like you know it's like all life matters you know like you can't just wipe it out and i think of the movie um i think it's war of the world no wait one with keanu reeves the day that oh uh, oh god what's that movie the day that uh day after tomorrow it's one where like the aliens come and they stopped everything yes you know what i'm talking about right yeah yeah. and they like and they say that you know they take all the like animals off the planet they're like we're gonna wipe out the the uh we're gonna wipe out the planet and we're going to wipe out all the humans so that the animals can survive because if the if they if the if all the animals on the planet die then the earth dies but if the humans right. on the planet die then the earth thrives right so this alien race was going to come in to fix the world because they didn't want to give up earth and let it die they were just going to take out the mm-hmm. parasite which was basically the humans right. and in the movie yeah. um you know one of the professors explains to keanu reeves character who's one of the aliens and tells them look like it's not until we're at the precipice of like catastrophe that we actually change and that we are capable of change and it could be the same way. Like Thanos could have looked at it like, okay, like I'm, I can force you to change. Like this is what's going to happen. We see it right now with climate change. Like we're at the point right. where we're kind of like our arm is tied behind our back. We, we don't have a choice. We have to make these changes. And so I think that like, you know, Thanos feels like he's the hero of his story. He feels like, like his logic is right. And I have empathy for that. Like I get I don't know if it's empathy, but I, I understand why he feels that way, but I don't give him a pass on that, nor do I like condone that or say that it's right or that he, you know, he just thinks he's the hero in his story, but he's absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Yeah. I think all of this is so interesting and I, it, it brings me back to the complexity of these characters, right? Because we see, um, the question even, why don't we go back and kill baby Thanos, right? Which is a direct correlation to why don't we go back and kill baby Hitler, right? Which is the thought experiment that so many people have have used. Um, And it, again, it goes back to that utilitarianism ideal, like let's, you know, 
the let's make the best decision for the whole. But I think, Monica, you were really getting at this. The problem with utilitarianism is that human greed comes into it. And a single person, regardless of their intentions, can never make the best decision for everybody because that is just simply impossible. Um, and I, I feel like all of these conversations that we've had about all of these fantastic, wonderful characters has... I don't like to me it's actually made the movie more complex like I feel like I understand less about it than I did when we started talking um, which is a which is a great place to be um so I um I want to move away from characters a little bit and actually actually ask you guys um what were the most emotional moments for you I know we talked about a few words that that we felt like at the beginning of this podcast but um what were your uh Hell yes moments, and what were your I am weeping to the point of destruction moments? Um, mine, I this is America's ass. Yes, I think was my, maybe my favorite moment of the entire film. Forgive me, forgive me. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I think when Captain Marvel showed up, uh, was was really like I nearly stood up and start. Okay, I'm, I did stand up and start cheering. Come on, don't don't lie, Sean. <laughs> um, for me, like. The whole experience of watching this movie in the theater was really exciting because everybody in the theater was reacting the same. It was like a loud, like, oh, no, yes, clapping, yes. no. And then like when, like in the beginning when Clint's family got snapped, like um, I was like, oh, shit. And everybody was like, no, no. It was like this sound. And um, at one point, you know, when Thor chops off Thanos' head and then like it just goes to that black screen. My son actually said really loud, like, that's it? And so then everybody <laughs> around us just starts laughing and they start busting up because, like, we were all thinking that, right? Mm -hmm. But, like, my kid said it out loud and everybody starts laughing. And it was like we experienced this whole movie together. So I think that in itself was a big emotion for me because I've never been in a movie theater where everybody was just, like, so on board. And, um, so like even like the crying, like the people around me were crying, my, you know, my partner and my kids were crying. And so I think the whole experience was a big, big moment for me. Um, my big hooray moment was when Cap gets the hammer. Yes. Oh, my God. I was just like, yes, that was amazing to me. I really, really yes. love that. Um, I thought I would ugly cry at Tony and Peter reuniting. Like, I thought that that's what it would get me, but it didn't. Um, I think the, the ch cheeseburger moment when, like, you know, the little girl asked for the cheeseburgers and Happy's oh. like, I'm going to get you all the cheeseburger. And it's like, you know, a callback to when he finally was rescued from, well, when he rescued himself from, like, the desert. And he's calling a com press conference and the only thing he wants is, like, a cheeseburger, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, like... Like that part really got to me. Um, but like there was for me, there's so many hooray moments. Like, um, oh my God, there's just so many, you guys. Like I can't mm -hmm. even like <laughs> unpack yes. it all. I love Thor being badass and like being in his like, I loved when like, you know, he calls the lightning, he turns into his Thor outfit and his beard is braided. Yes. Like I just about okay. lost my damn mind. Like that was amazing. <laughs> I was like, ah! and Thor fighting like like big Thor, big guy Thor, and looking all like the big Lebowski, like but like badass. Oh my god, that did so much for me. Like I don't know what it is because like I don't know what it is about seeing like a character who like looks like everybody else like on our planet who's not godly being godly. You know what I mean? Like that yes. fucking oh man. Um. I don't know. I just had so, so many beautiful moments like that, that I really, really loved. Yes. I had a lot of excitement for this movie. Yes. I, I, and I am the same way with the whole seeing it in the theater, everyone having the same experience with that five years later moment, just getting that, the chills of like, it's been five years. Like it wasn't like, you know, it was such a surprise. Yeah, like right? three months later or two months later. No, it was like five mm -hmm. freaking years went by. Like I got the chills and I was like, holy crap, their world has just crumbled into nothing. And so that, you know, it, this the silence in the theater when that screen came up was just like chilling. Um, and then um, my definite ugly crying moments were the first five minutes when um, Clint's family is gone. 
Um, I was like, are you kidding me? This is how you're going to start the movie is, is with crying. Um, and then when Pepper told Tony that he can rest. Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. I had I took my glasses off and I just was like, I could hear everyone around me crying. There were a couple of like groups of teenage guys next to us. I could hear them crying. I mean, it was just like, because I thought for sure they were going to save him. Like, I was not expecting that death. Like we said in the beginning, I thought Cap was going to die for sure. And so when yeah. Tony was sitting there, I was like, okay, well, they're just going to like pick him up and take him home and they're going to resuscitate him and it's going to be great. And then he is gone. And I was just like sobbing so hard. And then through the whole funeral scene was just, it was beautiful to have them all there. Um, and then Did you guys notice the kid in the funeral scene. That, who like, was that? That was the little kid who helped him out in that one movie where like he was hiding out in the kid's garage. I think it's oh, Iron Man yeah. 3. Anyways. Oh man. Continue. Sorry. Okay. I just wanted to bring no. that up. No, it's all good. No. And then just like the 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 um the closing scene when you know they were dancing and then the credits rolled, I started sobbing. Because I was like, all right, this movie has just like delivered the best wrap up ever. And I could not contain it was like happy tears combined with sad tears combined with I don't know what the hell just happened tears. Like it was just all of the feelings all at once when the movie ended. And then, of course, my hooray moment was when Captain Marvel was coming in. But at first you didn't realize it was her. It was like the turrets all shifted during the big battle scene and they all kind of looked up and there she was like destroying the ships was awesome. Was I also so really, awesome. I really loved when like Dr. Strange opened the portal, Dr. Strange. Yeah. Like uh, yes. when he um, opened all the portals and like, you just see everybody walk by. I was like, Oh my God. I yes. Yes. Like, Everyone cheered and like rooting and screaming. And yeah, that part was amazing. And then the, you know, she's not alone again in this movie was just, ugh, it was, it was really awesome. Yeah. I am, um, uh, the, the moment, I love the way you talked about it, Madison, uh, with Tony, like you think that he's going to be resuscitated. Uh, but for me, like remembering sitting in the theater in the very first Iron Man movie and he's standing at the press conference and he's like, I'm Iron Man. I remember being so surprised. Like, that's not what a superhero does. What a superhero does is he hides his identity, and that is the story mm -hmm. arc for the next three movies. Um, and so that being, like, a super surprising moment for me at the very beginning of the MCU, and then circling back around in this, like, him saying, I am Iron Man in a completely different context mm -hmm. um, for me was just connecting so many of the dots. And really, you, you spoke of um, Cap, like, tying a bow earlier. I felt like that bow... Um, for me, as tragic as the end of this movie is, it was um, it felt so powerful to hear those words in different context. Yeah, for sure. So it's actually it's taken us eleven years and twenty two movies to get where we are here with Endgame, um, and nothing like this has ever been done before in cinema. So just to finally wrap up, what have been your overall feelings as we say goodbye to the Avengers? I am sad. For sure, but I know that all good things must come to an end. Um, and I think it's just been an incredible ride. And, um, you know, it was, it's such a beautiful ending. And it, you know, I <laughs> kind of speechless in a sense. I mean, I know we just spent like an hour talking about it, but, but, but just like, <laughs> you know, when it's, when you think about the fact that this is the end. It's just like, like, wow, we, we did. We had 11 years and it's just neat now to go back and rewatch those movies. We're never going to watch them the same, you know, like going all the way back. They're watching them through. We're never going to watch them the same way again. Yeah, absolutely. Like for me, the biggest overall feeling that I have is gratefulness. Like I'm grateful for these 11 years. My son was four years old when Iron Man came out and Iron Man was his very first superhero. It was one of the first movies he ever saw in theaters. And we saw it in theaters maybe about four or five times. Um, 
and he loved it. And, you know, he always wanted to be Iron Man for Halloween. He wanted to be Iron Man for, you know, he had an Iron Man birthday party and Avengers have just always been like this part of my family's life. And it's really been cool to see my kids grow up Marvel, you know, Mm -hmm. um, it's been like, I'm so grateful for like this shared family thing that we've had and all these movies and just always looking forward to like the new movies, like always kind of like this thing that we did together. We buy our matching shirts and we show up and, you know, I think like, I'm grateful. Like this is so cool. And like, what an amazing time to be alive when like storytelling is the way it is right now. And, you know, it's, it's sad to say goodbye to our favorite heroes. I'm excited to see what the next wave of, you know, Marvel superheroes will be like. I think mm-hmm. if there are anything like the first 11 years, like, I, thank you. Like, I'm ready for the next, you know, and just overall yes. grateful. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, that is going to wrap up this episode of the Temple of Geek podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to hit us up on Facebook or Twitter by using the handle Temple of Geek. If you want to check out some of our other episodes or shows, head over to templeofgeek.com where you'll find all sorts of content that pertains to the world of geek. Thank you to our guests for joining us on this episode. My name is Emily and we will see you next time. Please follow us on Twitter at Temple of Geek. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Temple of Geek. And remember to visit TempleofGeek.com. Your one stop for all things geek. Goodbye. This will conclude our transmission.